Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everybody. And also joining us today, Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. And an, our newest panelist on the show, Dr. Amber Wise, Scientific Director at Medicine Creek Analytics, an actual chemist who will be doing actual botanical chemistry this afternoon. Hello and welcome, Amber. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we have a great show for you today, listener. We're going to start off with some news and the popular literature, as we call it, talking about why the DEA wants to know about your CBD and cannabis use and experience pre-legalization, an article in Vogue about mental health and psychedelics, what it's like to be a scientific subject using a psychedelic substance. We'll talk about proficiency testing before moving into a rapid fire to uh, science discussion about cannabis users' creativity in new venture ideas and entrepreneurial passion and experience. That's right. They studied how <laughs> business creativity and cannabis use intersect. And we'll end the science discussion talking about the stability of psilocybin preparations um, and different types of biomass storage. And we'll end with a game today, a new game we're calling Room to Grow, where we will test your knowledge of national statistics about cultivation operations. All right, enjoy the short break while we comb our hair and get ready for the news. And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. So from uh, what I like to call the Department of Nice Try, the Drug Enforcement Agency wants to know whether it's... Uh, Prospective employees or contractors have used hemp or CBD, but only if they used it before December 20th, 2018. And why is that? Because that's when the 2018 Farm Bill was signed into law, federally legalizing uh, some aspects of the crop and its derivatives. So this is a very interesting thing. Um, I, I don't know what to make of this. Like, why would they want drug disclosure information about people applying to use their products. Um, it seems like entrapment. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but maybe I'm just paranoid when it comes to cannabis. Uh, but uh, Sarah, uh, what were your thoughts on this article coming out of Marijuana Moment? Yeah, this article was really uh, depressing and disappointing and frustrating to me. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, shocking, I guess. I think I tend to give the governmental bodies more leniency. I often um, ascribe some of their misplaced policies to ignorance as opposed to something more deceptive. But but this seems sort of purposefully um, beyond ignorance, um, or I don't know. And I, the 
the part that I found the most fascinating, I don't know if you caught this, maybe it was a line or two, that when they talked about the Department of Defense as an extension of this, and that in the Navy, you're not even allowed to use hemp shampoo in case your hemp shampoo has illegal levels of THC in it and, you know, some fear that the sailors will be abusing their shampoo if it uh, has above the 0.3%. But yeah, that does strike me. I agree. It's a little depressing in terms of the, the little almost absurd ignorance um, on that part. But I can understand from a product safety perspective, you know, as a contributor to the literature on CBD product safety labeling, you know, a lot of, a lot of products obtained outside of brick and mortar operations that are licensed that do testing, you, you get this stuff from unknown places, you might fail a standard THC drug test, which then brings into question that, well, you know, people always talk about, well, is the THC and these other cannabinoids, are they legal from the cannabis plant? I mean, the test is in the urine, right? So if it's illegal to have it in your urine, it's probably illegal to consume it. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but that seems to make sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, Nigam, did you want to, you know, do you agree with Sarah about, you know, this is beyond kind of absurd a little bit? Or do you think like, you know what, this is the perfect policy for federal agencies right now? Um, wow. Uh, how do I express my, my thoughts and my feelings about this article? Um, for, first thing I can do is just second Sarah. I would like to just become a pedestal for Sarah to stand on my back and just say that taller, louder, you know, it would help. I'm only four eleven. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, really? I never knew that about you, Sarah. We've been doing so much remote podcasting. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> um, I, I think, oh, man, it, it's frustrating. Well, I, I think here's what I'll say. Uh, it's frustrating, but I, I'm not going to apply to the DEA. I wouldn't, uh, recommend that to, uh, others. Um, yeah, I feel like Amber, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like it, but let's see what, let's see what Amber has to say about it. I guess my question here is th this is a questionnaire that you have to fill out when you're applying to be a DEA employee. Is that, is that correct? So why would you ever, why would you not check? Just no. I mean, you can't prove anything from two years ago. Like, and this there's, you know, I don't know what a whole bunch of photos of you online rubbing CBD oil on your skin. <laughs> like what? I don't know. <laughs> there's a larger issue here. You're absolutely right. Employees and things like that, but also contractors, which could mean groups that are getting some sort of uh, manufacturing or cultivation license from the DEA. So when I read this, I was thinking, oh, they're going to just exclude everyone who has experience in cannabis from working with them on cannabis. Uh, you know, that, that was part of my concern. And there was one really great line, Amber, I just want to get your response to. So the article talks about an earlier version of the form that um, said there may be an exception for quote unquote for applicants who admit to limited youthful experimental use of marijuana. So do you have an exception? So do you have an exception for that when you're hiring employees around the, the chemistry lab? Are you like, did you have any youthful experimental use of marijuana? And what's your favorite Beatles song? Yeah, I mean, I don't what yeah, there you clearly can't um, quantify what is youthful experimentation. Um, 
I feel very youthful and people probably wouldn't categorize me as a youth anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think everything I do is youthful. <laughs> yeah. Jayhan, there's one other thing here that uh, I kind of feel the need to say that these kind of rules are, if the goal is for people to not be inebriated or not do irresponsible things around the time when they're working, um, these kind of rules actually have kind of a negative effect because what people do is they would say, oh, I would love to consume some cannabis, but oh man, I'm gonna have to worry about that for 30 days. Or if you know, they have these hair tests that last longer, there's all these issues, right? But there's a whole host of other drugs that your body metabolizes a lot faster. So these kind of rules do also create a little bit of a culture of like trending people towards other options, which might be a little more risky or have some, some other more negative effects on the workplace than say some hemp oil or, or shampoo or whatever. You know, I love that. And I think it's a good transition to our next story about trending people towards, you know, other things, maybe riskier things, maybe not what we expect. And that comes to it's in vogue psychedelics and mental health. And it's literally in the publication Vogue, uh, again, non-peer reviewed. But what this article talks about is sort of a personalized experience from the author about seeking psychedelic treatment. But it was very ketamine heavy. And, you know, Nigam, I want to just get your thoughts on this. Like, Sometimes I'm confused here. Is ketamine a psychedelic? Can we really consider this disassociative in the dosing that's being administered at these like you know, boutique IV solution things. Um, and it definitely is a different administration form than most psychedelics. Um, you know, and so I'm just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on the article? Is this, is it too focused on ketamine and trying to like have it ride the, the trails of LSD and psilocybin? Or do you think that, yeah, what are your thoughts on this article out of Vogue? Yeah, so I like the article. Part of the reason I like the article is simply that a publication like Vogue, that that's not their key topic, and they reach a very different demographic than some of these other publications that are focusing on, you know, drugs, psychedelics, cannabis. So I think it's great to have these topics in these more kind of, like, in different uh, demographic. Um, also... Okay, so you posed a few questions. Uh, one is, is ketamine a psychedelic? So that's an interesting question. I'm not going to give it a hard yes or no, but I'll, I'll share some thoughts about it. So one, I think outright it's being bucketed with psychedelics uh, for a few reasons. One, because it's kind of like uh, at the root, there is in the effects of ketamine at a certain dose threshold some kind of effect beyond what you would get with like an opioid, you know, that does have this little aura or similarity to some effect of a, of a true psychedelic. Um, but when I say it's kind of bucketed that way, it, it's because ketamine has been around for a long time. It's had recognized medical usage for a long time. We even reviewed an article all about all the ketamine medical usage since the 1970s on a prior episode. And that was really fun. Anyways. Um, so, I think it's serving kind of a purpose right now uh, as a pathway because folks say, 
we're doing psychedelics therapy. Now, what does that mean? That means ketamine was legal before, ketamine's legal now, and they're just doing infusions for at maybe a little bit higher dose or maybe for a little longer period of time or maybe for a different indication. So um, is it a true psychedelic? Once again, I'm not going to give it a hard yes or no, but um, it's it's being used for a reason and called that for a reason. In that reason, I'm okay with. So... I, I like that, Nigam. You know, you brought up some good points. The dose of the psychedelic. And, you know, to paraphrase an old adage, nothing's a psychedelic, everything's a psychedelic. Maybe it's just a matter of dose. And it brings up another question as we're struggling to categorize this. And, and Sarah, I kind of like to maybe get some insights from you on the article next. Um, but one of the things this article made me think about is do we have the terminology to talk about psychedelics clearly yet? And let me give you an experience like what people are experiencing with the disassociative and the death of ego with ketamine might be very different from DMT. And um, from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, Sarah, which you recommended I read and I'm partway through it, it had this great passage, like take a cave person and, you know, from thousands of years ago and zip them to Times Square in New York and then zip them back to their little cave community. And they have to explain to people what they saw. They may not have the words to describe skyscraper, car cell phone, CBD billboard. Like they may not be able to, they could draw pictures, but like, what the hell is that thing that you're drawing? Um, so Sarah, you know, share us some thoughts about Vogue and a little bit about the scientific classification terminology here. Yeah. So right off the bat, I'll agree with Nigam that I was really happy that this was published in Vogue. Um, and you know, it's something that we I've talked about a lot is, I think sometimes the the best things that thing that comes out of some of these articles is that it spurs conversations. You know, I, I want to see more people thinking about psychedelics and talking to their friend or neighbor or mom. You know, what is what is this about psychedelics and people using them? And it reminded me of something I believe you had said, Jehan, is you know. I, I want people to think about their opinions of that. Like, well, why would, why do some people still get that sort of cringy feeling about somebody tripping? And, you know, it, what do we not like about somebody having a hallucination and, and the difference between positive and negative? Cause one thing that's interesting about ketamine and also about salvinorin, which we'll talk about in a bit is people are sort of extra concerned when it might be a bad trip and how how should we feel about that and handle that from a medical and sort of you know societal perspective and i do think it, it it's a fascinating question how do we define what is psychedelic i mean is dreaming and sleeping at night a psychedelic experience um so i i i think that with this new emergence of psychedelics recreationally and therapeutically it's very important to define that and it harkens me to people talking about cbd as non-psychoactive and that you know that's a term that drives me crazy well what do you mean by something being psychoactive i mean it, it only affects my mood my energy <laughs> my perceptions but it's not psychoactive yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, so all these Sarah. Psycho terms, you know, as a neuroscientist and somebody who hates people 
separating brains from minds and psyches. <laughs> I think it's really important to talk about uh, the definitions of these words. And I can go on, but I think a lot of what I have to say also fits in the next articles. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And so, Amber, I want to give you a chance to comment here on, on um, this, this article. And maybe I would ask you, you know, the article talks about, oh, low dose ketamine, you know, as opposed to taking wallop packing plant medicines like ayahuasca, ibogaine, or peyote, uh, all these uh, like substances that are used in sacred rituals for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, you know, ketamine aside, what do you think would be uh, one of these substances you'd like to see more research on? If you could wave a magic wand, would you want to do a peyote study um, for smoking cessation? Or is there an analytical chemistry sort of interest you have that you can share? Um, I think there's clearly, you guys have covered it in this podcast before. There's a number of botanical and fungal, uh, living, um, <laughs> organisms that have potential opportunities here and narrowing it down to one is hard. Um, I'm going to like dodge your direct question there, but, um, I think that the idea, and I, I think it's in the next article, we'll talk about the understanding the mechanisms of these different types of psychedelics, right? We, we put all of these in the same bucket, but they obviously have very different mechanisms in our bodies. And so until we, I think, tease that out a little better, understand those mechanisms a little better, it's gonna be a lot of just trial and error, right? Um, just literally trying drugs and figuring out how they make us feel or good or for better or for worse. Um, and I guess in the better aspect, they have relative um, safe, usages with relatively few side effects, right? And so I think that's part of the reason why they're um, able to be studied more frequently currently um, and in a relatively safe manner. But that Absolutely. quote that you had about the wallet packing versus whatever the low dose is, I mean, that's just a, a clearly a non-scientist <laughs> writing this for a non-science publication, which is fine, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> What is the wallop, the unit of the wallop packing scale? Um, is it wowies? How many wowies do you have in a wallop? Um, you know, and, and, and um, Amber, it's not whether or not you, you dodge my questions. It's how well you do it. And speaking of like focusing on research and not being able to dodge questions, imagine being a research subject and using a psychedelic substance. And that is the focus of our next article from Wired, as well as covered by, by Vice as well. Uh, Daniel Oberhaus has written this uh, cool article, This Is My Brain on Salvia. And he loaned his head to one of the first, perhaps the first, fMRI studies on the effects of salvinorin A, a potent psychedelic. And a little known fact about salvia um, that I found fascinating is it's one of the few psychedelics in modern times um, that the uh, substance was isolated by a layman, the purification. And he posted his journal online, if you want to read about the, the history of Salvinorin A. And it literally is like, he just has long tubes and he's fractionating crystalline things and writing about, I'd use the brown crystalline thing, didn't work. The red crystalline substance didn't work. I mean, I'm kind of like paraphrasing here. Then he gets to one that he's really not excited about. He's like, oh, there's a whole bunch of this stuff. Uh, it's probably not going to do anything. I'm taking a large dose. And then it just like like two hours later, the journal entry is, I awoke in my living room. Um, so, you know, salvia 
is popularized because of that. And, and so, again, I think I've always been fascinated by it because, again, you know, there are still discoveries out there to be made about these things. But uh, I can't imagine uh, right now, I mean, it's being a subject where you put on a blindfold or headphones, someone administers a, a substance that you may or may not have any expectations about what's going to happen. And then they start studying you. Um, you know, Sarah, you know, rats and mice may be a little easier to study, but um, I'd just like to share your thoughts about this article. Were you cringing while you're reading this guy's account or were you like cheering him on? Um, share your thoughts on this article. I loved these articles. Uh, so I have a lot of friends in my field who are kappa receptor researchers. So I'm very familiar with people being interested in these types of chemicals from the aspect of treating pain, where, where investigators are trying to study the opioid system to come up with safer analgesics. And the kappa opioid receptor rises up there. And people have, many of my friends have hopes of treating pain, targeting the kappa opioid receptor and staying away from the mu opioid receptors to decrease you know, the euphoric and dependence issues around the mu receptor. And of course, the downside of touching on the kappa receptor is dysphoria, which people report when they use um, salvinorum. And we try to study dysphoria <laughs> in rodents. Um, you know, there, there's ways we try to address that, but it, you know, that part of characterizing it is tricky. Um, so I, I think it's very cool. You know, the, the author was a, I think it was this one where some of the statements I thought were a little negative Nelly about how, you know, there's probably not much hope for this or that. Um, but I think we just, you know, we need more human studies, um, with these compounds that touch the kappa receptor, um, one thing I'll, that Amber already touched on that was highlighted really nicely in this article is that these compounds have such different mechanisms of action. So, you know, we have a psychedelic basket that we lump all these compounds in. And when I think of psychedelics, I think of serotonin. And that was sort of how most of us learned about psychedelics in pharmacology class. But then you have ketamine that acts on NMDA receptors and you have salvinorin that acts on kappa. So are we sort of looking at the wrong way to bin these different drugs, you know, what do they share? And that's the part of this article that I thought was awesome, was tapping into this default network again and, and discussing that the, the shared effect of all of these compounds is disrupting that default network. Um, and what I liked about that is then can we focus on how can we do that without some of these other effects of the different classes of compounds. I, I thought that there was so much um, in these articles uh, to really get excited about. Yeah, and I, I like what you said there, Sarah. It's almost like it, while this information is helpful, it almost only adds confusion to the, to the thing. Cause you're like, well, it only targets one system and it's going through, you know, a receptor site that an op a type of opioid receptor that is totally unique. And, and so, you know, Nigam, you kind of just led the, the, the discussion on is ketamine a psychedelic? Is salvinorin A a psychedelic or is it just a different type of psychedelic? Um, 
what are I'm, some takeaways from the article? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and I, I was going to hit it uh, at the end uh, of my thing about ketamine, but I was trying not to be too long-winded. So, uh, and I also kind of knew that Sarah was going to talk about receptors, so this all is kind of circling back perfectly. So, um, yeah. So the, the fact that uh, so let's talk about definitions, right? So we could define psychedelic by what receptors is it interacting with? So serotonin versus kappa versus, uh, you know, opioid receptors, so on and so forth, right? Um, and if you want to work under that definition, then we're going to need a lot more silos and subcategories, and we're going to need to stop slapping psychedelics on things like industries, stocks, uh, companies, publications. Uh, it's going to need to be a lot more refinement. And that might not be bad. I mean, as a group of scientists sitting here, yeah, for us, maybe that's not bad. But um, the other way to think about it, which is maybe more palatable or easy to grip for a larger segment of the population, you know, part of what we do here is we're kind of translating some of these things to uh, what folks who aren't necessarily scientists and, and have uh, other other things that, that deserve a primary focus. A different type of categorization might be okay for example how does it make you feel what are the effects so if we're going into that bucket then maybe ketamine is a mild psychedelic because it does at certain doses have these effects that people would put in the same bucket as the mild psychedelic effects they might have from something else right that, that is a serotonin interacting substance or serotonin receptor interacting substance so uh the last thing I would say to hit just on uh, the salvinorum is that I, I would have to say yes. I, I think it's uh, in the second bucket of the effect, I would have to say yes, I, it's a psychedelic. This is not a mild thing that these people are experiencing. Oh, all right. Thank you, Nigam. Yeah, um, I definitely would agree that salvinorum A maybe is, is special among what we classically define as the psychedelics. And definitions change over time. Now, obviously there's a, something we have to think about and that's commercial applications. Um, and, um, you know, I'd like to get Amber just a quick sense from, you know, I know psychedelics are often thought of as purified substances, but, you know, do you anticipate that when as salvia and these other products become more accepted, Maybe commercial licenses are issued to more formally regulate this stuff. Do you think testing standards are going to be the same, similar to cannabis? I know like testing botanical products is your thing. Do you think they'll be testing, you know, salvinorum preparations for bacteria, fungi? Um, is there, are they going to require NMR analysis to make sure it's a certain, you know, isomer? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on if we're talking about whole plant kind of usage versus pharmaceutical isolation and formulations, obviously. Um, but I think that um, it would be great if there were testing standards for sure. Uh, you know, I my understanding is this is sort of like a legal gray area um, and some states kind of ban its use, some states don't. Um, if we're talking about classifications, I would like to pull out my botanical hat here for a moment and say that salvia is a very huge group of plants, including sage that we eat for dinner. Um, and mint is in the same family as salvia and all kinds of herbs. And so if you are, you know, if you, there's all kinds of salvia that are great for um, hummingbirds in your yard, for instance. And so 
it's important to be very specific when we talk about Salvia divinorum as the specific species. I'm just going to like, Sorry, everyone Amber. knows that this Sorry, is my Amber. thing. I, I, I was a little bit, I was a little bit vague. Thank you for pointing out this, <laughs> this concept. Um, but I just want people who are non-scientists, non-botanists to know if they see Salvia at, on a label at their, you know, Home Depot, it's not necessarily, you know, the kind that's going to give you these types of effects. So um, to get back to your original question about testing standards, Jayhan, um, yeah, I mean, it would be great to see, you know, public health and safety testing standards for sure on this kind of material. And I guess people smoke dried salvia if you're getting whole plant. Is that the route of administration here? Um so certainly, you know, bacterial uh, issues could come into play there. Um, so uh, I, I really like your point about don't just go to Home Depot, see something made salvia and like elbow your buddy and be like, dude, we're going to have fun tonight. Like they, they can't believe they sell this at Home Depot. Um, you know, what makes hummingbirds happy may not make you happy. Uh, so I think it's an important consideration, but maybe, you know, a universal symbol, Amber, you may think of four psychedelics so people could discriminate between what you know these closely related plant species what actually has a psychedelic substance in it and what doesn't and before we go to the proficiency testing article sarah i want to ask you um you know drug discrimination here's a great thing like human beings walking into a plant store and they see all these salvia plants you know how do they discriminate between what's a psychedelic and what's in it and are animals yeah, just go. Let's go to the basic science. Are animals any good at telling one psychedelic from another, or, or a placebo from another, or opioids from psychedelics? Could you speak to yeah. that? Yeah. So one thing that came to mind when I was listening to Nigam was we actually, I think one of the coolest experimental tools we have in rodents is something called drug discrimination, where we train a rodent to tell us what a drug is similar to another drug. And we use it for many different things, but we, we, one of the reasons why we use this is to see if we think drugs may have abuse liability. So we train a rat to know what morphine feels like. And uh, then we can give the rat a different type of drug and actually behaviorally train them to tell us yeah, that felt like morphine or yeah, that didn't feel like morphine. And you can actually do that to some extent with psychedelics. And it's unclear whether that is, again, more receptor mediated, like, are we asking the rat, does that affect your serotonin receptor or not? Um, and I think we need to do more of these kinds of experiments, like, you know, does salvinorum A feel like ketamine? And uh, you could probably parse out psychedelics that are dysphoric versus not. Um, but more importantly, we can do these experiments in humans. And I think that's what we're all talking about. You know, so something Nigam said is like, ask somebody, is this psychedelic to you? Um, and I think that, you know, because the important thing is what the people think, not what the rats think. So it, it again, it's a very, you know, highly regulated research tool that would be a, a very quantitative subjective way to ask people, you know, do you think ketamine is a psychedelic is basically test them on different, you know, how does this make you feel and, and compare these? Amber, I really like that concept. And I'm just thinking for like a brief example, 
there, there's a big trend with microdosing psilocybin mushrooms. So is a microdose of psilocybin mushrooms that makes you a little more aware or maybe maybe it's even just a little placebo. Maybe the dose is too small. But like is that – so here we have a traditional serotonergic, you know, psychedelic substance, but – is the experience at that dose and in that route of administration psychedelic? You know, I ask, ask somebody, how does it feel? Right. Yeah. I get asked all the time by friends, whatever people on the street, more or less, you know, I ordered the CBD cream for my aches and pains and it doesn't work. And my first question is, did it make you feel better? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't like, I can't tell you if it worked or not. Like you tell me. (laughs) Well, there's that disconnect, right? I mean, we can test it all day long. I think Amber, you're talking about NMR. I've talked about NMR on the show before. And, um, you know, we, we can test it all day in the lab. We can tell you what's in it. We can talk about dosing, but in the end, a lot of that variability comes with the end user. And I think that's something we're still parsing out in a lot of these spaces is what, how do you give a good recommendation to an, to an end user to kind of eliminate some of the guesswork that that's kind of a, kind of a hot topic these days. Nigam, that is a, another great transition to our new frontier, uh, article about, um, proficiency testing, you know, standardizing these products, trying to eliminate some of the factors. And so this, uh, report from new frontier, which is very interesting and kind of starts to look at, you know, as standards and practices are becoming, you know, increasingly enforced, available, changing, it increases challenges in manufacturers and um, communications and commerce and adapting to new regulations or just meeting current standards, especially as new and new products keep coming out and testing methodology methodologies remain the same. Um, so, you know, I'm always interested in like understanding the current testing environment. What are the gaps with the challenges and are there opportunities? Um, you know, and how can we also inform regulatory decisions? And so, Amber, I'd like you to address all of those points with your comment. But, you know, but, you, know you, you, you have to do uh, proficiency testing, PT testing as part of your job. Um, do you love it? Do you hate it? Is, is it a good thing, a bad thing? Can we start there? Yeah, for sure. Um, In Washington State, where the lab I manage is located, um, to be an accredited cannabis testing lab, the regulations here require that you do two rounds of PT testing every year. And and that's for every every assay or every test that we are accredited for, we have to run a PT for that specific test. And it's absolutely a good idea. Um, In my opinion, I I guess I was a little naive to assume that everybody had these requirements at least once a year. And these are also required in lots of other industries as well. Um, and, and for an idiot like me, uh, I'm sure, you know, everyone else knows what it is, but what is a proficiency test? Like, right. you know. um, so it's when a company uh, makes a, a, a standard product. Um, in this case, we'll use the example of hemp flour with a certain set of cannabinoids in it. They have a large batch of this. They quote unquote know the correct answer and they send these samples out to a lab and they, uh, the lab runs the test and reports their numbers back. And then the provider, the PT provider says, yes, you're close, no, you missed it. So it's basically just a literal test of your ability to be correct in analyzing a specific molecule. And so there are a number of companies that create standards. Um, 
and this is not new to the cannabis space. Like I said, it's you know standard operating procedure in environmental testing labs um, to, to pass PT tests. Um, and so this article in particular, um, I do want to clarify that it was, was written by what I, maybe a consulting firm, New Frontier Data, but it was funded by the largest provider for cannabis PT tests. Um, and I have nothing against Emerald Scientific at all. I just want to clarify to folks this you know, was, was paid for by the company that provides the most PT tests in, in the country. And um, they also don't, Emerald Scientific doesn't necessarily make the, the tests themselves. They subcontract out a lot of that. And what Emerald Scientific does is organize the data collection for these tests. And it's one, there's two different ways you can kind of set these up. I, as a lab manager, can just order a PT from a provider and they tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I can, you know, I report that to the state for my accreditation, but I don't know how I did in comparison to other people on the same test. But what Emerald Scientific does is organize lots and lots of labs, once in the spring and once in the fall. And, and then they compile all that data and then they have a way to compare, um, you know, how are all the labs doing in comparison to one another? What's the average pass rate? all those kinds of analytics. Um, and they do, when you participate in these tests, they do send the individual lab, here's all the raw data, it's blinded, you just get a lab number, and they tell you what your number is. So you can see where you stand, are you low for everything? Are you high for everything? Um, you know, one of the, the analytics that came a while back was, almost everybody failed one of the PT tests. It was like, or really, really badly, you know, didn't pass, a whole bunch of them. And then it was pretty obvious that there was an issue with the test itself um, because there were just like fails all over the place. Um, and so the, the actual sample that was sent out to the labs had issues for, you know, stability and that kind of thing. So that's a lot. Uh, I'll leave it there. Um, and no, thank I, you. I have other things to say as well, but. Well, thank you, Amber, for that wonderful overview. Um, you know, Sarah, I know you've always been interested in studying products that people are using, you know, just outside the lab, as it were, you know, not, not on the campus, but, you know, people buy products at any kind of health food market. Um, and there's always sort of been a lot of red tape at times in, in accessing that. But, you know, does this report, um, you know, it has bars and graphs and sciencey looking things. Does it make you feel more comfortable about perhaps doing research on the products in the market, or does it leave you with more questions? Yeah, well, you know, so what it reminds me of, and, and this goes back to what Amber said about people asking her whether the CBD cream is going to work. Uh, you know, that's the question that people ask me most often is, can I recommend them a product for their arthritis or for their side effects associated with chemo. And I wish there were publications that could give us any information about effectiveness. I'm glad to see that we have information about safety and that's fantastic. And so I, I feel like I have an increasing ability to point people to that. Um, but what's still missing is, you know, what these products can do. Uh, but at least we're in this, you know, space now where we can get information about quality control. And I, th I think a, a question that I would ask Amber and sort of like advice for pointing people in different directions is what, what do you think for a consumer, what is the top 
you know, one, two or three things that people should look for in data, you know, because someone can't look up what is the most effective CBD tincture, but, you know, what is the most important or are some of the most important things to look for? Yeah, the way I, I get asked that question a lot. Um, and the, I, I don't have a great answer. The, the best thing that I generally tell people is if you're buying a product, you know, online is the general way, certainly now with COVID, but um, in, in general, is there um, a certificate of analysis that came with that product? And most people don't necessarily have a great skill of understanding a certificate of analysis, but if they're good certificate of analysis, COA as we call them. If they're a good one, they're, they're easy to read, it's pretty straightforward. And those give some sense that this product was sent to a lab, it was tested for whatever's listed on that COA. Um, I'm not saying that just having a COA is going to guarantee a safe product, but there was some minimum amount of effort put into screening it. Um, also, this article, it, it points to PT tests, which is basically a test for the analytical lab itself. These PT, you know, this is not, this is like another level removed from the consumer. Um, so, you know, the, this article particularly says, you know, you can get these, what they call badges. If you pass the test, then Emerald Scientific gives you a badge and you can use that badge in your marketing to say, oh, look, I'm, I passed the test. I'm good at testing for heavy metals or I'm good at testing for microbes. Um, and, you know, I, maybe in states that don't require PT testing, that could be a marketing edge, or if it's a really competitive market and not everybody participates in these, it could be a marketing edge. But in my personal experience, it has not been anything I've used for marketing purposes, um, passing this test. It, it, to me, it's like a bare minimum to be operating. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amber. Um, and a great question, Sarah. So. You know, this is the, the New Frontiers Cannabis Proficiency Testing Report. It's freely available, listener, to download. You know, Amber, um, you know, uh, any, any final thoughts uh, before we go on to the next segment? Uh, I think one of the other things I'll try to be quick is the, the, another issue with cannabis PT testing in particular is getting actual in-matrix tests, which means... You know, currently it's illegal to send a THC containing flower bud to any other state. So I, when we take PT tests, we are only looking mostly at CBD, high CBD types of products. And analytically, I won't get into the weeds here, but um, when you have high THC and other cannabinoids present, that THC peak can end up, you know, eating other peaks if you don't have good separation. And so there is not a great, I mean, I could talk about this all day. There, what is being offered is not even perfect for the, the matrices that are, that are being sent out. So there's definitely room for improvement and it is improving. There's more and more in matrix tests available as time goes on, but without having an, what we're actually testing as part of our test, there's, there's some gaps there. Absolutely, Amber. Thank you. I really appreciate your, your um, expertise on this. Nigam, we're running short on time, so uh, I'd like you to express your feelings about this article in 20 words or less. Okay, I'll try. I think my biggest takeaway was 
it was a little hard to actually see the data through the eight full page advertisements in this 14 page document 18 page document well thank you Nigam. and we're gonna go to a break and we'll be back with our peer-reviewed discussion I'm Dr. Ethan Russo, CEO of Credo Science, where our goal is to make cannabis safer and better with our formulation services. Learn more at credo-science.com. That's C-R-E-D-O-science.com. Thank you. And we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the peer-reviewed science articles for this episode. And our first article is entitled Head in the Clouds, Cannabis Users' Creativity in New Venture Ideation Depends on Their Entrepreneurial Passion and Experience from the Journal of Business Venturing. Now, um, basically, let me try and sum up this article for the listener. It's, um, you know... The, the intersection of new business, the way what I interpret is the intersection of new business ideas and creativity and cannabis use. You know, if you are working on a business idea and you hit the bong, are you going to be like, I have a thousand new ways to improve this? Or are you just going to be like, it oh, looks good enough to me? Um, so, Sarah, you know, did you think this article helps add to kind of our discussion about cannabis use in the business space? Um, what were some what did you like? What did you not like about this article? Yeah, I think maybe as usual, I, I think I sort of, again, took more thought-provoking things away from it. Um, you know, one of which is bias in the field. Uh, so, you know, when I started in cannabinoid research over 10 years ago, it was very bifurcated um, of like a very strong pro cannabis is going to save the world group and researchers that were either like cannabis curious or were substance abuse researchers trying to prove how dangerous it was. And there was this huge like gap in between. One of the best things that's happened over the last decade is how that has filled in and that there are a lot of people in the middle and a lot of people working across the aisle. And I think that it remains important today when we think about the cannabis industry to have representation from different aspects. And so I guess why I was thinking about that from this article was sort of the takeaway that cannabis users may be more creative cannabis entrepreneurs, but they may be less realistic. Um, and, and so I guess my, my thought on that is how important it is to have different perspectives. I didn't really think of it from the aspect of how does cannabis use impact your brain to change creativity or realism levels. For me, it was more just thinking about what, what do different people have to offer in this space, be it creativity, realism, a point of view or a perspective from 
different parts of society. So that's sort of where this article brought me to thinking. I, I like that, you know, and they had their, their, what I thought was cool was their, their task was to develop new venture ideas based on virtual reality and, and kind of looking at how they thought about that. And, you know, I've talked to professionals in the space about their cannabis use. And one lawyer said when he was working on a case or a report for a client, um, he would use cannabis as an idea generation to sort of grease the pan, as it were. And he said, yeah, I'd use some cannabis. I'd stay up, uh, you know, spend an hour, come up with 100 ideas. Then I'd wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and 96, 96 and a half of them would just be terrible. But there'd be three or four really good ones on there. Um, and that was just sort of maybe part of the process. And there is some schools of thought on creativity that it works in different phases where you need to put up every idea unfiltered as many as you can, because you never know where that like fundamental insight will come from. And, you know, sometimes it takes a really bad idea to come up with a good idea. Like, hey, what happens if we stick a fork in an electrical socket? you know, maybe we should sell little plastic things to cover up electrical sockets, you know? So every bad idea sometimes leads to, leads to a good idea. Uh, you know, um, of course, you know, I, I struggle with some of the practical implications of this research as, as interesting as it is. Um, but, but Nigam, do you, you know, you, you love talking about the end numbers in, this, in these studies. We finally found one I think has a decent, you know, it's not 10 people, right? How many... <laughs> Yeah. What are your thoughts? Okay. So yeah, I, I'm moderately satisfied with the end number, but I have some other thoughts on this. So I'm, I'm going to get a little bit critical. And for people who don't know me, I, I'm a big cannabis advocate. I'm a big cannabis guy. I believe in it strongly. Um, love to talk to people about how to, how to use it for, for their, for their needs and all that. Um, good time for a disclaimer. You should also talk to your uh, medical provider about any stuff like that. We're, we're not providing any official advice, but but it is good to talk to people and share knowledge. So anyways, I, I'm just going to start rattling off some things that I think were not really addressed here that kind of matter. And then, you know, Sarah, I, mean, I might just be teeing Sarah up to just smash this one way out of the park. So, um, so humans in the way their bodies or endocannabinoid system interacts with drugs, especially, you know, multi-component drugs is there, there's a lot of things going on. So I'm just going to rattle off some things. What is that person's tolerance? What was the dose? What was the chemotype of that thing that they, that they're bringing up? Um, what is the time of day? What, uh, what are the other factors like distraction or, uh, concentration or whatever that has uh, nothing to do with cannabis, right? So, uh, I don't know. I think these these kind of things really matter. Um, it's so far as like how an individual interacts with the plant for idea generation or for any other like cognitive function. You know, like there's some people who use cannabis instead of caffeine. There's some people who use cannabis instead of an opioid. There's some people who use it for ideas. There's some people who use it for other stuff. So anyways, I, th I think the, the niche thing uh, kind of matters. Um, but those are just some thoughts I had. Thank you, Nick. Um, you know, Amber, I want to clarify. I want to know, you know, you've read the study, obviously. And um, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, you know, I look at this study and I think, gosh, they got people high 
and got them in a boardroom with a whiteboard and some magic markers and were like, hey, come up with a new virtual reality business plan. Um, is that what happened in this study? Were they getting business people high and like having them come up with ideas? From what I can tell, they were not high when they did this. Um, it was the requirement was that they had used cannabis more than five times in their life and twice, two or more times in the past month. So, so that's like a, they're making a big assumption there that like a single exposure may cause irreversible creativity in the brain. Right. I had a lot of issues with this. I couldn't, it's 21 pages long. I couldn't get through the whole thing because I kept getting offended by many of the <laughs> phrases that here's a quote, oh. while cannabis users, cognitive tendencies likely detract from idea feasibility. What <laughs> are you telling me that like, you know, if you are a cannabis user, your ideas are just less. I mean, that's the point of this article is the ideas are less feasible that you come up with. Um, and I guess one of the biggest unknowns for me here is, is this kind of study standard in, in business publications? This was, and there's a, a number of what might look like graphs on this, in this article, but there are two lines, two dots connected by a line, which also is not um, what I would consider a scientific representation of what they're trying to indicate here. Um, but also just, you know, they did, they had all these ideas and then they had to like write about their best one um, as part of the survey. And then the way that all of the data was generated for this was two people, two quote unquote expert, um, they had this highlighted, two expert raters independently evaluated the one originality and two feasibility. So all of this data comes down to two expert raters saying, oh, this is a feasible idea or not. Um, so, you know, yeah. what are what are those two expert raters like understanding of cannabis use? You know, there's a whole host of questions I have with this. But I do want to say that the study authors were just on the road in the other Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington. So, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's very interesting because, you know, if they weren't blinded to who the once, you know, used cannabis five times in their entire life and therefore are irreversibly creatively tainted and they're looking at their proposals they're just going to be like oh yeah fly a rover to mars this guy must be high um you know that's that we can't do that um so yeah i think that you know is uh you know nigam we're gonna have to share this study in the show notes it's gonna be there um you know should we put a disclaimer does this get like uh you know we put different disclaimers on studies we publish that we we rate them differently so yeah this one might need a little um you know, for discussion purposes only, uh, kind of got a little black box warning on it. Yeah. Please do not use to set your corporate policy or design your retreats around. Um, yeah, I just, I guess could see like, you know, interview process, like two like guys from like trading places, like getting some guy like at their stock trading company. Have you ever used cannabis? And he's like, yeah, like once 10 years ago, this is our guy. This is our creative lead. The science says so. Um, you could make yeah. a great new spinoff of that show, Shark Tank. Oh, there we go. I see a whole new reality TV show stemming from this article. Have you thought about your business plan? Why? <laughs> or, or actually, Amber, thank you for for elucidating that that detail that they weren't actually high during the test. So it's more like, have you thought about a business plan? And also, have you been high before? Right. So it's it's getting pretty far out there to, to so draw the, conclusions. 
Sarah, real quick before we transition to um, our last science article, and maybe this will spin off a whole other discussion, but you know, it, it is an important discussion. I feel like how does you know the intersection of cannabis and business and venture capitalism and idea creation and, and just finding ways to study these myths or legends or whatever these things we accept without ever challenging them? Cannabis makes you creative. Well, where's the data? And, and are there similar challenges in the cannabis space? Does it remind you of anything else that, that we try to study in cannabis or tools we use and try and suss things out? Yeah, I would say like everything. And, you know, actually, <laughs> you know, when I teach courses on cannabis, I, you know, remind the students that almost everything we think we know about the effects of cannabis on the brain especially, but on all the organ systems, comes from historical recreational use data that I believe was heavily biased. Um, and, and this kind of research, it goes back to what Nigam said. I almost called you Jehan because I was looking at your Zoom name on the screen. Yeah, we <laughs> like to mess around. We, li we, like to, we like to keep it, you know, lively. It's, it's, a, it's a human discrimination test. <laughs> But, you know, what Nigam said about different factors, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, conversations about the effects of cannabis use on IQ and how many different factors go into correlations between IQ and cannabis use. And there's almost an endless list. If we all sat here and listed all of the covariates that could be responsible for differences between cannabis users and non-cannabis users on IQ. And I would say the same thing goes for creativity. So when I went to graduate school, I met cannabis users for the first time, or at least knowingly met cannabis users for the first time. In the wild. And in the wild. And what I was the most struck with is that they were the smartest kids in the program. And first it was like, blew all of my perceptions on cannabis use and just made me rethink many different things in my life. But, you know, again, it goes back to do creative people try cannabis? Like, you know, I mean, it's like chicken or egg kind of question. And there's just, there's just so many, even if this was a really well-designed study, it's so difficult to tease apart any relationships that you might find. I think there'd have to be a little innate creativity just to be creative enough to be like, we should use cannabis to see how creative we get. You'd have to already be, you already have to have like a foot out of the box at that point to think that that would be, you know, let's spice up this uh, brainstorm. So there's no, I think it's interesting. I like this boxing, you know, I talk about this get out of the box. Um, I think before there was no cannabis in the box. Like, so when I was doing my PhD at, at Purdue University, there was zero cannabis in the box. And now uh, we have young people going to graduate school and getting degrees, graduate degrees in cannabis, touching uh, cannabis in, in their laboratories in countries where it's federally legal. And um, I love that. I love that there's cannabis in the box now. That, that makes me feel decent about the future. Sounds like a new burger chain. Now I'm hungry. Cannabis in the <laughs> box. That's where you get your uh, CBD hemp burgers. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, where the motto is, I bet you can't eat just 17. Um, so and the other motto is, um, this may be psychoactive. Don't fool yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of um, new products, 
I want to move to our next article, which is about something near and dear to some of our hearts, and that is storage and stability of products. And, and this article comes to us uh, from researchers in Prague and the, or the Czech Republic, and it's titled Stability of Psilocybin and its four analogs in the biomass of the psychotropic mushroom Psilocybe cubensis. And so basically what these uni uh, university folks did was take psilocybin cumensis mushrooms and store them different way and look at four compounds. And I bet you didn't know there were four compounds of interest in psilocybin mushrooms. They looked at psilocin, baocystin, aerogenanacin, and norbaocystin, as well as psilocybin, oh, sorry, five compounds, and looking at the stability of the, the mushrooms. So um, let's just jump right in. You know, Amber, you have a ton of experience in the analytical chemistry of these things. Um, just off the bat, like, you know, this is probably something everyone should be doing with their products, but they looked at, you know, light, dark, lipophilized, freezer, freeze-dried. And I was just wondering, was there something that surprised you about how they stored the mushrooms and which was the best way to store mushrooms for three months? Uh, yeah, actually the results were surprising. The, the negative 80 freezer and even the negative 20 freezer seem to have the most degradation. And that's generally not the case or scientists generally think, oh, put it in the freezer, it'll last longer. Um, and so that was I mean, surprising. Yeah. They didn't really give any explanation or hypothesis for why that was, I don't think. I, I didn't read this super closely. Um, so, um, so one of the things they did, um, and I know it's, it's like a very kind of, it's an interesting article and they, they kind of like to hide what they did in there, but they did um, keep it as a biomass. So like on just like mushrooms, stock caps, pile of them. Is how I visualize. They just have a pile of mushrooms in the big freezer. And then they took some and they ground it up because they want to see if you could powderize it. And, and you're absolutely right. The results were surprising. Like I would think if you standardize the prep, ground it up, put it in the deep freeze where, you know, you put all your precious drugs, all your precious samples, put it in a deep freeze. Um, you know, even the Marvel movies, they store the superhero serums like in deep freeze. But here it caused degradation and it looked like surprisingly <laughs> storing it at you know a cool dark place you know a cool dark cabinet or maybe in a basement type atmosphere that was the best place don't don't crush up your mushrooms and put them in the freezer it might degrade them i think there's two two main takeaways i had from this is it's another reason why we actually have to collect the data and not just assume that negative ad freezer is the best and also, the like when they look at over time, it actually was not all that different in terms of the degradation um, of the different molecules. So, you know, over the course of one to two months, you get most of the degradation in all forms of storage. So, the takeaway message I had was: don't let those mushrooms sit around if they're dry or fresh. <laughs> that, yeah, that, I, I like that approach. Um, you know, eat the mushrooms before they go bad. Uh, but then maybe that brings up like, you know, this whole, there's like fermented teas and stuff, you know, where people ferment teas for like years or they like ferment them in nitrogen to get like, you know, a GABA rich tea or a low caffeine tea or like different aromatic components, different experiences. And I wonder if like with psilocybin compounds, maybe what this is hinting at is a process to create 
maybe like a, a, I don't want to call it a cured product that could be commercialized. Like, okay, fresh mushrooms, super potent. But if you store them for three months at minus 80, you can get this nice kind of low dose thing that can maybe be used in a microdosing study. Might, might, be, a little, might be a little crazy, but, um, you know, Sarah, you, you know, what were your thoughts on this study? Are you glad you know this so that if you do add a psilocybin to your DEA Schedule 1 license that you'll know how to store it properly? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it does also remind me that I hate when I forget I have mushrooms in the crisper in the fridge and then they get all slimy. <laughs> That's my normal expertise in the mushroom world. I also realized how little I owe about mushroom anatomy that I, that was interesting. But what it reminded me of is several years ago, I visited a research facility in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. They have this phenomenal warehouse space where they have frozen samples of different, um, you know, and I don't want to say plants and be wrong, but, you know, biological material that they've collected throughout the world. And it's all stored to be researched someday, which is super cool. It's just like shelves and shelves of different things. And we had to put our winter coats on to go in there because it was kept at a freezing temperature. And I was like, oh no, like, you know, like for some stuff, like you were saying, Amber, we, we assume freeze it to protect it. But, you know, we might again, miss something if that's not the right way to store everything. Great point. Great point. Um, all right. Well, we are running short on a HLI time and I still want to get to our game. Um, Nigam, I'm going to give you the last chance to say something provocative that starts a tangential conversation that makes us run way over time. Oh, I thought you were going to team me up for another amazing transition, but we could, you know, <laughs> well, that too, that too, do also what you want with my words. They're yours. Okay. Thank you. Um, so uh, about this article, the thing with the freezer is a as a guy who's put like literally thousands of samples in the minus 80, yeah, it's kind of confusing. It's kind of a confusing thing. I, I would like to look more into that. Um, also, a few other takeaways, high, high level. I thought it was kind of funny that the conclusion and this, we see this all the time, you know, listeners hear me talk all the time about the knowledge of the, of the people who did it before the drug culture well turns out there's a lot of knowledge there. there's a lot of useful knowledge so it's funny that the result of this is don't grind it and keep it in the dry cool place you know well people who deal with mushrooms before we already knew that so anyways but to get into a few more well thank you to this paper for confirming that and uh to get into uh, a few other things just briefly uh there there what I thought was the most interesting stuff that they did show was the difference uh, in the levels of these uh, useful molecules contained within these mushrooms uh, pre or post drying. And folks who are familiar with cannabis might be familiar with this because uh, it's a big thing in cannabis too. Like, especially out here in California, we have this like almost obsession and with people who like extracts with this fresh frozen they call it live you know live resin or live rosin and and you essentially traditionally with cannabis you'll cut it down you'll dry it you'll cure it 
and then you'll you know use the flour for whatever be that extraction be that edibles be that smoking right so but in in the last several years there's been this thing where they will cut it down the plant still wet and you freeze it and you run it straight to extraction and you get a, a different profile of molecules right so i thought that was cool um and then uh i also thought it was cool they were kind of looking at the different parts of the mushrooms and the different molecular components there also super cool similar parallel to cannabis you know we we concentrate on the on the flower but what about the roots what about the other parts that have these other molecules that might be useful right so i thought that those were two like the most interesting takeaways for me um final comment uh jayhan you're asking sarah oh will you add psilocybin to your schedule one uh license to research and all that well i would posit that if sarah was to buy um psilocybin from a you know licensed uh seller of these chemicals that she would get it in a form that probably would act differently in the minus 80 than ground up mushrooms with all these different components in it right so it's not really a one-to-one um but now i'm getting a little bit into the uh into the mushrooms or into the weeds of storing samples in the research laboratory but it it kind of matters you know it, it kind of matters how your research comes out uh how you how you store so it is an in- interesting topic thank you all right any any final comments on storing uh magic mushrooms or as the researchers call them magic truffles before we go to a break and then the game I would just say super quick, you know, there was an announcement that Kate, Pfizer came out with that the, their vaccine doesn't have to be stored at minus 70. And my boyfriend sitting next to me said, well, wouldn't they have already known that? And it just exactly reminds me, like, we make certain scientific assumptions based on this. I bet it has to be done this way. And we go with past history and we don't try to change things right away and it's not until there's some necessity to run the experiments to figure out well is it really true does it really have to be stored this way so it's just a very strange (laughs) sort of coincidence on on what happened in the news this morning going by assumptions and then testing later (laughs) hey uh you know ready fire aim uh is there any other way to do it All right, listener, we're going to take a short break and come back with uh, a new game we're going to try to play. And I know you love those weird, awkward games we try out. So this one's called Room to Grow. And stay tuned because we're going to test your knowledge about national statistics about cultivation operations in the United States. At Marco and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific and critical thinking skills. So this game is called Room to Grow, where we will test your knowledge of national statistics about cultivation operations. So uh, as the number of legal cultivation licenses has increased 
and regulations have dictated cultivation sizes by requiring voltage, you know, vertically integrated facilities or, you know, limiting licenses in certain states to meet demand. The average square footage has increased, but by how much? So I'll share with you, listener, as well as our panelists, that um, in 2016, the average size reported uh, for respondents in surveys who identified as currently owning or working for an organization that grows cannabis said um, that it was 18,000 square feet on average. Now, they released their stats for their 2020 survey, 202 respondents, um, clearly not everyone growing cannabis in the United States. But to give you um, an example, another survey in Canada found that just indoor cultivation in Canada, total square footage, I don't want to tell you the average size of operation because it will give it away, but the total square footage of indoor cultivation space in Canada alone was 15 million square feet. And that's just what they were able to confirm. And that's indoor dedicated space. I think another 180 hectares or so of outdoor uh, cultivation space. So, but for the United States, um, I would like to say this, you know, you want to hear, you know, you guys can ask some follow-up questions, but the idea is who can ever get, who can get closest to the 2020 number of the average square footage of cannabis cultivation operations in the United States without going over will win uh, the fabulous prize today. Um, but remember, you know, the U.S. cannabis industry now employs some 300,000 workers. It's seen some steady growth, allegedly. Um, and we want to know kind of what your thoughts are. So, um, Nigam, um, are you ready to make a guess? Do you have some questions? Oh, man. Um, yeah. Can you just clarify? Okay. So we're in the United States. Um, and it, do we have any clarity on if this is only like licensed THC grows or if this also could include like outdoor uh, like CBD hemp grows? Good question. Um, the research was not clear on that. I, I think um, it seems to me that there is a, a division there where people think they're not growing cannabis when they're growing hemp. So I'm going to say, let's just put all the clowns that learned a few buzzwords aside and we're going to just focus on people who have licensed, who literally have the word cannabis in their license, I yeah. think, or identify as a cannabis producer, medical or adult use. Yeah. Not like this weird niche, like, I don't have to follow any laws because I'm growing hemp. Woohoo! <laughs> um, so just 200 or so respondents who work at a legal cultivation facility. Um, and again, similar methods, and they've used that this, that this group... Um, Statista has used uh, every year to to track this. Okay, I'm I'm thinking a little bit. I don't have a guess. I see Amber. Right. She she looks like she's got something. So more of a clarification. Um, yeah. Did you have a side like a respondent number in 2016? You said the 2020 respondents was 200 something, 202. Um, it was similar in size. I don't um have the exact number in front of me, but it was probably all, all it was probably less uh people. Uh, a little bit less, but um, they do break it down online in terms of respondents and, and they're kind of spread all over the place um, in terms of, I would say that um, in terms of sizes reported where they group them in the pie chart, uh, 
it's it's still kind of the same distribution of small to large facilities kind of that that way you still see kind of the same distribution just more people uh responding also jayhan are we looking for the average or are we looking for the median i think you said average yes average square okay. footage of cannabis cultivation production areas in the United States. Yeah. Um, in 2016, I'll say it was 18,000 square feet. In the US. Okay. Whoo, okay, I'm getting close to guessing. All uh, right, and, and again, you know, uh, I would say this, you know, do you guys want a clue or you want to start throwing some guesses out there? Oh, I would, I would take a clue for sure. <laughs> okay. I will say that it did not increase uh, threefold. So hmm. it is less than a threefold increase. Yeah, I was not going to guess that high, but that that is helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, the way that I'm thinking about this is we're asking about the the size of individual facilities. So yes, there are many, many more players in the field, but are the size of the facilities getting larger or not? I would. The way I'm thinking about it is, yes, they probably got a little bit larger, but, you know, there is some, there are some caps, particularly for license sizes and canopy sizes um, um, in, in different states. So and I, I think where it's getting confusing for me trying to like parse this out and uh, I love estimating things. So I'm like trying to like do some math and like estimate, but what Amber said has a lot of truth to it. A lot of states have limited licenses. They have square foot uh, maximums and this and that. But then you have places like California where if you're in the right area, you can get, grow like 100 acres of like THC cannabis. And there's several groups doing that in California right now. So, And then you have outdoor licensed farms in California. These things are just expansive, you know? So um, anyways. And Sarah, like as you know from research, like if you get one outlier – that's huge. It could throw off the curve, as Nigam's saying. So yeah. that's what makes this calculation. Extra points for guessing the standard deviation. <laughs> yes, but I don't. Uh, wow. I'd have to calculate that because they did not provide uh, the standard deviation, but they do provide a, a couple different charts here on mm -hmm. Statista. So I know you guys are being good sports about not using the internet or doing a Google search, but um, I'm you know. Gonna I'm going to toss out a guess. Yes, please uh, do. Nigam. Oh, man. Uh, okay. I'm going to say uh, 32,500 square feet plus or minus 2,500 square feet. 32,500 square feet. Okay. St standard deviation uh, thanks to Sarah. Well, okay. <laughs> or plus or, I'll, I'll give you plus or minus 2.5. So yes. it's like spoken like a true scientist. Um, so does that sound like Nigam was being a little creative or does that number sound, uh, realistic? Um, you know, I'm going to uh, go a little bit higher. All right. What are you saying? I'm going to go 37 because I like prime numbers. I'm going 37,000 plus or minus seven. <laughs> I'm, already feeling seven. Regret. I'm already feeling regret like i guess too low all right and amber <laughs> um i know i feel like i'm just like hey everyone let me ask you a question about an industry you don't directly work in like what is the square footage of uh you know chicken farms in the united states it's like <laughs> what? 
I'm going to go, if we're playing prices right rules, I'm going to go low and say 18,500 square feet. Oh, Jayhound's oh. playing a game with us with his, his hint. His hint was a trick, right? That's what you're saying, Amber. Jayhound does like to increased, mess around. But not very much. Right. So you right. think, you think it just like, uh, just a couple extra farms in there. This, the needle really hasn't moved. Okay. Well. Okay, listener, here are the guesses. So Nigam said uh, 32,500 square feet, plus or minus a little standard deviation of 2,500 square feet. Uh, 37,000 square feet, plus or minus 7,000 was Sarah's guess for the average size of a cultivation operation. And you have the big strategy, prices Right Play by Amber with saying just a modest increase over the 18,000 square feet to 18,500 square feet. So... If 18,000 sounds a little low and 37,000 sounds a little high and Nigam's answer sounded on point, well, the real answer was it has practically doubled since 2016 from 18,200 square feet to 36,300 square feet in 2020. So Sarah barely, so Sarah barely beat me, right? With the standard no, deviation. I barely lost. I went oh, over. Oh, wait. What was... Oh, I don't know if I know uh, Price is Right rules. I'm a little bit so, ignorant here. Did so, I win? Uh, is that the point? Did I win the game? I, yes. I, with your standard deviation. Now, if we take your absolute guesses, Nigam, you were over by uh, 200 square feet. But, Bummer. I mean, that is pretty close. Technically, Amber would have won if we went with absolute values because she picked the lowest increase without going over you were just you were so close i mean but so we'll say everyone's a winner today with standard deviation <laughs> what, what can i say i'm i'm in tune i'm in tune with the cannabis growers what can i say i mean i wonder you know i i wonder what their their standard deviation is and how much variance they got in that um but yes the average size um from 2016 to 2018 increased from 18,000 square feet to over 36,000 square feet in 2020 practically doubling in size in just four years, the average size of cultivation operations in the United States. All right. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And also thank you to Selena Lee for doing the fabulous work for each episode please be sure to check out her website and her series of watermelon art it is awesome <laughs>